Well, if I start speaking in tongues tonight, it's not because I'm charismatic, all right? I, uh, I've been traveling for the last two days trying to get here and uh, happy that I made it. This is my first trip to Australia and uh, very thankful to be in your church tonight. I've heard of this church for a long time and uh, just grateful to God to be with you. Uh, one of the flight attendants on the flight from uh, Sydney today to Brisbane said to me, she said, I hear your accent. You're not from here. And I started to say, yes, I'm from Brisbane, been here all my life, but uh, obviously I'm not from here. I was born and raised in the mountains of West Virginia. And uh, as a matter of fact, that's where we live now again with our family. And I travel full-time as an evangelist and uh, grateful to God for the opportunity to do that. Uh, I uh, served for several years alongside uh, Dr. Clarence Sexton at Crown College and uh, now I've been in evangelism almost two years. And so I appreciate your pastor letting me be with you tonight. And we need your prayers. I asked your pastor if it would be all right if I brought a little gift for you this evening. And so I think I've got enough for everybody. But on the back table on your way out tonight, a handful of our prayer cards are there if you'd like to pick one of those up and pray for us. You'll see a picture of my wife and our three children. Uh, but there's a bookmark there that I really want you to have. And it's a devotional bookmark, something you can put in your copy of the Word of God. And it has just some suggestions for you about your time in the Scriptures every day. If the only Bible you get is the Bible you get from somebody like me or your pastor, you're never going to be the Christian God wants you to be. And God has designed it so all of us can be in the Word of God every day. Think of that. You don't have to go through a man to get to God. You can go straight to God in His Word. Isn't that wonderful? And I want to encourage you to spend time every day meditating in the Word of God. Now, tonight, I want to take you to my favorite book of the Bible. Now, somebody said their favorite is whichever one they're in at the time, and I understand that. And because all scriptures give my inspiration of God and is profitable. Uh, but I want to take you to my favorite book. I wonder how many of you have a favorite book. Would you raise your hand? Good. On the count of three, I want you to shout it out. Ready? One, two, three. That's a great book, whatever you said. If it's scripture, right? I want you to turn with me in the New Testament tonight to the book of Philippians, if you will. Uh, to Philippians chapter number four. And we know this is a great book because it's a book of Christian joy. As a matter of fact, this week in a I'm trying to remember what day it was, but sometime this week in an airport, I uh, struck up a conversation with a man. He ended up being a, a football coach for a, an NFL team in the States. And an uh, interesting fellow. Matter of fact, it was a divine appointment. He was so interested in spiritual things. Before we finished our time together, he downloaded a copy of the Bible to his phone. And he said to me, I'm going to start reading. And he said, he asked me, he said, where should I begin and I gave him two or three recommendations, and one of the recommendations I gave him was this book of the Bible. Now, it's short, only four chapters long. But I love the book of Philippians because it is a book that says again and again that God's people ought to be the happiest people on planet Earth. Do you believe that? I meet so many people that are just enduring their way through life. And I want to tell you, God designed the Christian life not to be endured but to be enjoyed. Now, I know I'm going to enjoy the destination. Are you looking forward to the destination? But God made it so you can enjoy the journey. And it's interesting that Paul wrote these words from a prison cell. People say, I tell you, preacher, if I could just change my circumstances, I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. No, because if you could change that circumstance, you'd have another circumstance. Uh, I meet people and they say, I tell you, if I could just change this one family member of ours, everything would be right. No, because if you could straighten that person out, there'd be somebody else that wouldn't do what they ought to do. Our joy must never be in things or in people or in circumstances. Our joy must always be in Jesus. That's the one thing the world cannot give you, and praise God, the world can't take it away. 
When you come to Philippians chapter 4, you find one of the great open secrets that unlocks the life of joy. It's a two-word sermon. I'm going to give you a two-word sermon tonight. Some of you are saying, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Before you get too excited, it's going to take me a few minutes to explain the two words. Look at it with me, would you please? Philippians chapter 4, verse number 10. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. Wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to, say the last two words please, be content. Say it again, be content. One more time please, be content. I want you to tell your neighbor, ready? One, two, three, be content. No, 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 I want you to preach it to them. Get your preaching finger out. Ladies, this is your chance, all right? I want you to turn to the center next to you, and I want you to tell them what I'm preaching on tonight. Ready? Be content. Now, look, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to brainwash you. That's what I'm trying to do. Uh, it's a good brainwashing. It's the washing of water by the Word. When I'm done, you're not going to remember me, and you're not going to remember my outline. You're not going to remember most of what I say, but I want you to remember two words. What are they, church? Be content. Someone asked me not long ago, they said, in your travels, different places, What are some of the things you've observed? And I've been in lots of different places over the last several months and a variety of churches. And there's certain things that are the same and there's some things that are different in every place. One of the things I've observed among so many people that are good, faithful Christian people, I know who I'm preaching to tonight. I'm preaching to the Wednesday night crowd, right? I'm preaching to the heart and soul of this church. And one of the things I've observed in my travels is that I have met a lot of restless people. Faithful, but restless. Might I say it this way, discontent. Going through the motions, almost this attitude, well, you know, things are bad, but we're just going to hold on and hope for the best. And listen to me. There are moments in life where everything does unravel and all you can do is just keep putting one foot in front of another. Have you ever been there before? If you haven't, you'll be there at some point, I promise you. But I want to say to you tonight, God designed the Christian life so that wherever you are, whatever season and whatever situation, God has designed it so that it is actually possible to be content there. As a matter of fact, when you study the Bible, one of the things you're going to discover is that contentment is a mark of spiritual maturity. People who have learned something about really walking with God every day Learn the secret and the joy of contentment. I had an aunt, a great aunt actually, that's with Jesus now. Her name was Goldie. I grew up on a farm in the hills of West Virginia. Goldie lived there on the old home place. Matter of fact, she she had the oldest house on the farm. She had no family outside of extended family, some of us. And uh, she had one son that lived in Colorado that never visited. As a matter of fact, the entire time I was growing up, I never met him, not once. That's awful, isn't it? She was a widow woman. She lived alone. She had hardly any income. She she really had nothing as far as this world's goods. But Goldie had something that very few people I've ever met in my entire life, she had something very few people have. I remember riding by her house frequently on my bicycle. It was on the path to my grandparents. And I'd stop. When I'd see her outside, she's always sitting on the swing out on the front porch. We're just sitting there swinging. And I'd stop, try to encourage her, say a nice word to her. 
By the way, for the record, can I tell you, I'd give anything to go back and have another afternoon with her. I'm going to tell you something. Some of these great saints we're letting pass off the scene all around us, we ought to pay a little more attention to them. I'd listen to her a little more. She was a sweet woman. And I remember one day near the end of her life, riding my bike by her house, and I saw her sitting on the porch, and like always, just out of habit, I stopped and put the bike at the bottom, walked up the old rickety steps, and she was sitting there like she always was, but that day was different. There was a glow about her that day. I'll never forget it. I went over and sat down next to her, and I said, how you doing today? And I'll never forget her, never forget her. All the dozens of visits I had to her home, this one stood out in my mind. She said, wonderful. And I said, really? And remember, no company, no money, none of this world's goods. I said, what's so wonderful? Tears filled her eyes, and she looked at me, and she said, you know, Scott, she said, sometimes I like to just get down on my knees and just look at him. And I thought to myself, bless her heart, her mind's slipping now. Can I tell you, after all these years, I don't think her mind was slipping at all. As a matter of fact, I think nearer the end of the journey, what truly mattered was what was coming out. See, she lived there in that old house all by herself. She didn't have anything to look forward to as far as this world was concerned. And yet she had learned the secret of being there all by herself and being a happy Christian. And by the way, for the record, I think it would be good if some of us learn again what it means just to get down on our knees and just look at him. It is the great secret to Christian contentment. By the way, if contentment is a mark of spirituality, discontentment is a mark of carnality. As a matter of fact, read 2nd and 3rd John sometime and read what John said, wrote about a man named Diotrephes. Remember Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence? And the Bible says, and is not what? Content therewith. I'll tell you a mark of unspiritual people. They're always thinking they're missing out on something. By the way, where did all sin start? With a seed of discontentment. Think of this. Adam and Eve lived in the perfect place. Do you ever think of this? Eve is the only woman in history that can say she was married to a perfect man. She was married to a perfect man. And Adam was married to a perfect woman. Praise God. Some of us think, I tell you, if I just had a better husband, if I had a better wife, Adam, Eve, you'd mess that up too. That's not going to make you content. You see, sometimes we're putting the burden of contentment on people that could never fulfill that even if they were perfect people. And I'm going to tell you why. Because God never designed contentment to be wrapped up in things around us. He designed contentment to all be centered in Him. Look, what made Eden Eden? Not the birds, not the trees, not even Adam and Eve. You know what made Eden Eden? The presence of God. And I want to say to you tonight, the great secret, the great secret of contentment and of joy in the Christian life is this, learning to live in the presence of Jesus Christ every day. As a matter of fact, would you write this down somewhere in the margin of your Bible? I'm going to give you a little definition tonight for contentment. Just write this down somewhere, then I'm going to give you two or three things to write under it. Would you write this down, please? Contentment is this, one thing, it is being satisfied with God's sufficiency. That's what it is. By the way, it's the only cure for covetousness. Covetousness is when I want something more than what God desires for me. You know what contentment is? Contentment is saying the Lord is enough. How many of you believe Jesus is enough? Then why do we grumble and complain like he's not? 
And we come to church, and the preacher says, Jesus is enough. And everybody says, amen, preacher. And then we go out, and we live like Jesus is not enough. And I want to say to you, if I was a lost person and met the average church member, I wouldn't want their Jesus either. Because it doesn't seem as if he's truly enough. But I want to tell you something. When you get to the place where Christ is all you have, you discover he's all you need. And when you get to that place, you've discovered the great secret to the happy Christian life. You've discovered the joy of two words. What are they, church? Be content. I want you to write two or three things down about this contentment. Would you please? Number one, would you write down somewhere that this contentment is learned? It is learned. And that comes directly from the Bible. Notice what the Bible says here in verse number 11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have what? Learned. Isn't that amazing that the greatest Christian that ever lived said, I had to learn this? Wouldn't you think, wouldn't you think, Paul, wouldn't you think, Paul, that that experience on the road to Damascus would be enough? Paul said, no, that was enough for me to get saved. But in my own experience, I had to go to God's school. Any of you ever been to God's school? By the way, Jesus holds class in some strange places, doesn't he? With unusual circumstances, he teaches, and one of the great lessons Christ teaches is this lesson, please, that we must learn to be content. And let me just testify for a moment. For me, that's been the lesson I've had to learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. Because after a while, we all start thinking we need something more. And by the way, if you think you're the exception to that, Paul, I think, was the greatest Christian that ever lived. Notice what he said. I've marked in my Bible in verse number 11, I have learned. Notice past tense. Now come to verse 12. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, mark this please in verse 12, I am instructed. Notice the present tense. Paul said, I learned this in the past, but now I'm learning it again and again and again. I'm talking to some people tonight who've been saved for a long time. For me, I met the Lord Jesus 35 years ago this year. He's just a boy. And I praise God. Oh, there's no day like the day you get saved. How many of you remember the day you got saved? Was that a good day? The hymn writer said, glad day, glad day when Jesus washed my sins away. That was a good day. The only day that's going to be better than that is the day I meet Jesus face to face. That'll be the greatest day I ever live. And I, that day, I discovered that Christ was enough. But can I tell you 35 years later what I'm still learning? I'm learning every day in the present tense that Jesus Christ is all I need today. That Christ's sufficiency is enough for this day. That God's grace is enough for whatever need I have at this moment. I'm learning this over and over and over again. Watch, please. And if Paul learned it in the past, had to learn it in the present, and now is trying to teach the church at Philippi, I want to say to you, you and I need to learn this lesson. And whether you've been saved six weeks or 60 years, I'm going to tell you that one of the deepest, most profound truths in all of Scripture is this lesson. It seems sometimes we never learn, and it is this, that Jesus is enough. Contentment is learned. Let me show you a little something that helped me. Hold your place here a second. Turn over with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, would you please? Come to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I'm going to show you a little secret to how do you learn contentment. Look, please, at verse number 5. The Bible is describing here the world we live in. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. That sounds a lot like modern-day Christianity, doesn't it? Prosperity, gain is godliness. From such withdrawal thyself. But, here's biblical Christianity. Godliness with what, church? There's that word again. Godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. 
But now wait a minute. He doesn't just say that. Now he's going to teach you how to be contented. Keep reading. Look at the rest of the story. Verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world. Here's the first way we learn contentment. Think about where you came from. Can I tell you where Scott Pauley came from? I came from nothing. I came into this world with nothing but my naked soul. That's what I came into this world with. I came in with nothing. And by the way, spiritually speaking, can I tell you how I came to Jesus? With nothing. I didn't come deserving anything. As a matter of fact, if there's any good thing in my life, it's not because of me. It's because of God's unmerited mercy and favor upon my life. Look, we came from nothing. When I stop and ponder that a moment, you know what it does? It brings me back to reality. You know what I deserve? One thing, hell. That's the only thing I deserve. And any day I'm not in hell is a day better than I deserve. Amen to that? When you're tempted to be discontent, think about where you came from. Oh, but that's not all. Look at the rest of verse 7. And it is certain we can carry nothing what? I've marked in my Bible nothing in, nothing out. Not only should you think about where you were, you should think about where you're going. Can I tell you where you're going? You're leaving this world, and you're going to stand face to face with Jesus Christ. Now, in light of that, let me just tell you, the size house you live in doesn't matter so much. Would you agree? And whether you got the raise last week or not, that's really not the source of contentment because someday none of that's going to matter. And our cars are going to stop running and our clothes are going to get moth-eaten and our houses are going to burn and all of this is going to pass away and the only thing that's ever going to last is what's going to last at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ someday. When I stop to think of that, suddenly, look please, church, suddenly, This doesn't mean so much. And my contentment now is not rooted in temporal things. I'm finding it is in eternal things. Oh, but that's not all. Look at the next verse, verse 8. And having food and raiment, let us be there with what? Isn't it interesting how God keeps using the same word? I don't know how it was at your house growing up. But at our house, if mama said it once, I was supposed to listen. If she said it twice, I was really supposed to listen. And if she said it three times, it was too late to listen. How many of you understand what I'm talking about? Not good. When God says something repeatedly, by the way, it's good to see some of these kids raising their hands right now. That's very good. When God says something repeatedly, it's not because he forgot he said it the first time. No, he's trying to put it deep in our hearts. He keeps saying this word. Here's one of the secrets to contentment. Not only should you think about where you came from and where you're going, but think about where you are. Can I tell you where you are tonight? You're being provided for. David said, I have been young and now I'm old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. How many of you have eaten in the last 24 hours? Raise your hand now. I'm looking around. There's not too many starving people in this room. And most of us had to go to a closet tonight to choose between more than one outfit what we were going to wear. You know what we are? We're spoiled. That's right. We're so everlasting blessed. We've forgotten how blessed we are. And sometimes we've been more concerned with the blessings than the blesser. And we've forgotten that every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And it might do us good to go back and start counting our blessings again. Do you all sing the hymn, Count Your Many Blessings, Name the One? That's a great song. Do you know how it was written? It was written by a man named Johnson Oatman who came near the end of his life and thought that life wasn't even worth living anymore and sat down to write a letter to his kids to end it all. Instead, he took out a piece of paper and started writing down some of the things he was grateful for. He said, at least when my kids find the letter, they'll realize everything in their daddy's life wasn't bad. And after he'd filled up four pages, he started laughing. And he said to himself, I can't end all of this. I've got too much to live for. 
And he took out a clean sheet of paper and for the first time wrote those words, count your many blessings, name them one by one, count your many blessings, see what God hath done. And I want to challenge you to do something. It might be good if all of us took out a clean sheet of paper when we got home tonight and started writing down some of the good blessings of God upon our life. You know what it'll do? It'll help you be content. And that's not all. There's a fourth little secret here. I want you to think about where you came from and where you're going and where you are, but you ought to consider where you could be. Look at verse 9. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Can I tell you where you could be tonight? You could be drowning in all the things you wish you had. Thank God for the prayers he hasn't answered. <laughs> because all of us think, you know, if I just had this, I'd be happy. It's one of the great lies of the devil. And can I tell you, lots of people who have this, whatever this is, are some of the most unhappy people on earth. And tonight, if you have Jesus Christ, if the Spirit of the living God lives inside of you, if you have the Word of God and you have a church family that loves you and your name is written down in the Lamb's Book of Life in heaven, you're a wealthy person. You've got wealth that nothing in this world can take away from you. And when you die, it doesn't end, it only increases. How about that? You ought to praise God for the things that you don't have. And in doing so, learn to be content. Go back with me to Philippians chapter 4. Let me give you a second little truth to write down. Not only is this contentment learned, but number two, would you write this down? This contentment is connected to all of life. All of life. It's not just about material things. It connects to everything. I grew up in a preacher's home. And I remember as a boy... Every now and then, somebody in the church would get out of sorts. And I'm sure that probably never happens here in Australia. Probably never happens in a church like this. But, and by the way, I don't know your pastor, and I really don't know this church. Isn't that wonderful? That's a glorious thing about being an evangelist. You come in, you don't know anybody or anything. You can just say whatever you think you need to say. It's wonderful. But can I tell you what I observed growing up around church? People would get out of sorts about something, and guess what they'd do? That one little seed of discontent would fester and fester and fester, and they'd major on that one little thing they didn't like instead of the hundred things they did love and thank God for. And after a while, guess what they'd do? They'd leave. That's right. And they'd fuss going out the door, and usually they'd say something like this. You've probably never heard this before in your life. Usually they'd say something like this. Well, we just weren't getting fed there. You ever heard something like that? You know what I learned? That's not what I'm preaching on right now. I learned that most of those people, the problem wasn't they weren't getting fed. The problem was they never learned to feed anybody else. It had all become about them. And that's not what a church is about at all. But can I tell you how discord starts in a church? With discontentment. Can I tell you how families fall apart? With discontentment. And sometimes couples who've been married a long time decide, you know, I need somebody different. I need somebody. No, no, you don't. No, you don't. What you need to do is let God come back through your garden, come back through Eden, and let the Lord sanctify what you already have. See, that's the secret of contentment. And here's what I learned. I learned that contentment is connected to all of life. It's connected to my church life and my family life and my material life. It's connected to my own spiritual life. It's connected to everything. How do I know that? Well, look in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 12. When I stop, you say the next word. Ready? I know <clears throat> both, circle that, both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed, what, church? There's that word, both to be full and to be hungry. What's the next one? Both to abound and to suffer need. In other words, notice the extremes. He says, on both ends of the spectrum, I've learned God's enough. 
Now look at the list. I'm just going to ask you which one you want. Answer out loud, all right? Would you rather be abased or abound? I said, answer out loud now. Would you rather be abased or abound? Yeah, I'd like to abound too. Look at it. Would you rather be full or be hungry? Me too. Would you rather abound or suffer need? Of course. Look, we always want it good all the time, right? I'm going to tell you the great secret of the victorious Christian life. God has designed the Christian life so that everywhere you are, in every circumstance, whether it's good or whether it's bad, you can learn to be a happy Christian. Isn't that wonderful? It means if I am at home with my family in the hills of West Virginia, surrounded by those I love, or I'm thousands of miles away, a little jet lagged in another part of the world, guess what? I can be happy in Jesus. And I'm going to tell you why. Because contentment is connected to all of life. Let me show you a great verse. Turn over to Hebrews 13 with me just for a second. Hold your place in Philippians 4. We're coming back. Come to Hebrews chapter 13 and look at verse number 5. I love this verse. The Bible says, let your conversation be without covetousness. And, let's see if these two words sound familiar. Be content. Be content with such things as you have. Now, is there a period at the end of the word have in your Bible? Mine either. No, there's a colon there, which means there's more. How do you learn to be content in all of life? For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. How many of you know you're saved? Jesus promised he would never leave you, and he would never forsake you. Now, I don't know about you. That's the most wonderful thing I've ever heard in my life. There have been a lot of days I've left the Lord, and I've even forsaken him from time to time. And if you were honest, you'd say the same thing. But there's never been a single day that the Lord has forsaken me or failed me, and I don't think he's going to start today, do you? By the way, notice the context. Look back at the previous verse, verse 4. Marriage is honorable in all in the bed and defiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. This is so interesting to me. But it's in the context of family and marriage that God says you must learn to be content. You know what we're living in? We're living in a world of people that think that they need someone else to make them happy. Listen, friend, only Jesus can make you happy. Only Jesus can make you happy. And so it brings me to the third and greatest truth, and I save it last for emphasis. I said, number one, that contentment is learned. Number two, contentment is in all of life. But number three, contentment is only found in the Lord. That's the bottom line of contentment. Contentment is not a thing. It is a person, and his name is Jesus. Go back to Philippians chapter 4, and notice how he ends this section on contentment. Look at verse 13. Let's just read it out loud. You know it? I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. You know how many people I've heard quote that verse through the years and not put it in the context of contentment? You know how many people I've heard say Philippians 4.13 is their life verse. It's my life verse, preacher. And yet they're not contented, happy Christians. And I'm going to just tell you something. When you learn that Christ is enough and you become satisfied with his sufficiency, it doesn't matter if it all unravels tomorrow, you can still be a contented person because you found your joy in Jesus Christ. And for the record, everything in this world is going to change but him. Everything. And I don't know what tomorrow holds. The bottom may fall out of it all tomorrow. But I'm going to tell you something. If the bottom falls out for a Christian, you're going to find out the foundation is still there. Because the foundation of our faith is the person of Jesus Christ and the only way to truly be content is to go back to what you know for sure. And by the way, a little interesting footnote to this. 
Did you know that contentment, the word that Paul uses here for contentment, was actually a word that was commonly used in Paul's day? But it was used by a religious group called the Stoics. Any of you ever heard of the Stoics? Somebody say, what were the Stoics like? Just exactly what they sound like. Full of themselves. They were Stoic. They had all the answers. They had it all figured out. And do you know, this was one of their favorite words. This is interesting, for themselves. They used the word that is used here for contentment to describe the, the level that they had arrived to. They were satisfied with their own sufficiency. And I love this. The Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes their word and makes it God's word. He sanctifies it, and he puts in the face of those Stoics, look, friend, you might think you're satisfied with your sufficiency, but someday even you are going to disappoint you. The only way to live life and not be disappointed is to find your hope and your joy and your peace and your contentment in the only one who is truly sufficient, and his name is Jesus Christ. I was just a teenage preacher starting out. An old, old preacher in the hills of West Virginia took a, took a liking to me and tried to encourage me. By the way, I thank God for those people. Would you be one of those people? Be an encourager. Find some young couple, some young man, some young lady. Find somebody coming along behind you and help them along the journey. That's why I'm here tonight. Brother Valance. He asked me to come preach a revival in his church. <laughs> I was 14. I look back on it and I think, what do I have to say? Not much, really. But he was trying to help me. I couldn't even drive a car. Couldn't stay at a hotel. Had to stay at his house because I'm 14 years old. One day we're at his house. Brother Valance said, Scott, come with me just a second. We walked up a set of rickety steps in his house and up to a little bedroom that was kind of his spot. Lots of books. He went over to the shelf, knew exactly where it was, reached up on the shelf, pulled a book off. Took out his pen, opened the front cover, wrote something. I still have it. To Scott Pauling from Reverend Carl Valance, and he signed the date. Turned, he handed it to him, and he said, this is a gift from me to you. I want you to have it. Now, let me just be very transparent with you for a moment. I appreciate this kindness, but I looked at that book. I was 14 years old. It was thick. Pages were yellow. Hardback, no pictures, not my favorite. You know what I did? Took it home, put it on the shelf, didn't read it. Years went by, maybe 20 years. One day, I picked it up long after he'd gone to heaven. And I thought, you know, I ought to read this. I started reading it. When I did, I couldn't put it down. It was a true story. It was a story of a Persian man by the name of Ali Hafed. Ali Hafed had a beautiful farm, had a lovely family, had a great life. There was a priest in Persia that made house calls. He went around from farm to farm. And like most people who are clergy, trying to think of some point of conversation to start with, he had made a study of diamonds and the discovery of diamond mines. And one day, sitting on Ali Hafed's front porch in his house, he said to him, Ali, you know they found diamond mines in certain parts of the world, and people that are finding them, they're, they're becoming so wealthy they never have to work again. And something happened in Allah Hafed's heart and mind. Strange, isn't it? Just a conversation, just a comment. That morning, Allah Hafed got up a happy man. That night, he went to bed unhappy. Might I say, 
discontent. For weeks, he thought about people finding diamond mines, never having to work again. And remember, he had a great life, great family, all was well. And one morning he got up and did something very, very foolish. He got up, he sold his farm, gave his family away. True story. Gave his family to a neighbor. Said to the neighbor, I, I'll be back for them when I found my diamonds. And Ali Fed set off on a lifelong quest in search of diamonds. He spent the rest of his life crisscrossing the globe hunting. Tragic. As an old man, he went to the bay in Barcelona, Spain, jumped to the rocks below and took his own life. He had never found a single diamond, not one. Somebody said, that's depressing. Oh, that's not the worst of the story. The worst of the story is that just days after Ali Hafed left home, the man who bought his farm led a camel out back on the property to water it at the creek that ran through the property. And that old camel was drinking out of that creek bed and its nose moving around and uncovered a beautiful rock. And the new owner took it and shined it up, thought it was beautiful, set it on the mantle in the same house Ali Hafed had lived in. And the same priest came by to pay a visit. And he came in, he saw it glistening in the light. He said, Ali Hafed has returned. And the man said, no. He said, where'd you get the diamond? He said, oh, it's not a diamond, just an old rock from the creek out back. The priest's eyes got big. He said, show me. They went to the creek bed and got down on their hands and knees, and they found another one just like it. Another one and another one. They hired teams of people. Miners came on every acre of Ali Hafed's farm, they found diamonds. As a matter of fact, at that point in history, it was the largest discovery of a diamond mine in the world. The great diamond mine of Golconda from which the crown jewels of many a nation came. It was right under his feet all along. And the moral of the story was what the man spent his whole life looking for, searching out there somewhere, missing out, trying to find it was right in front of him all along if he'd just taken time to work right where God had planted him. And I want to say to you, let the Holy Ghost make the application to you. I want to say to you, God's given you something precious in this church. I'm so encouraged to be here tonight. See this many people here for a Bible study on Wednesday night. It's thrilling. God's given you something special. Don't take it for granted. God's blessed your family. Don't take that for granted. We were riding down the road not long ago, and my wife said to me, she said, I've been thinking, we need, to, we need to do a better job of gratitude in our home. Like a dutiful husband, I said, uh-huh. She said, I'm serious. I said, what do you have in mind? She said, I was thinking, at night before we go to bed, we always pray together with the kids. She said, what if tonight before we went to bed, we went around the circle, and everybody had to say something they were grateful for? And I said, okay, yeah, we'll do that. We rode along for a moment or two, and she said, I got a better idea. <laughs> I said, what's that? She said, what if we all had to say three things we were grateful for? I said, okay, we'll do that. We rode along for a minute or two, and she said, I got a better idea. How many of you husbands know what I'm talking about? She said, what if we all said three things, and you can't repeat yourself for a week? I said, woman, you're making it hard on us now. And we did it. You know, the first night it was a little awkward. I'll just be honest, we were a little awkward. You know what I'm talking about. Somebody else said the thing you were thinking of, took your thing. 
By the second night, I got a little easier. And then the third night, can I tell you what happened? By the end of the week, not only were we thinking of lots of things, something had happened in the tone in our home. I can't even explain it to you. There was peace. The kids were even getting along better. How many of you know that's a miracle of the grace of God? We were speaking differently to each other. Do you know where it began? It began with gratitude. Because I think if some of us had stopped to think long enough and begin to thank God for his goodness to us, we would discover the great secret Paul found that worked even in prison of being content. Father, I pray tonight that the Spirit of the living God will be our preacher. We'll do the work he and he alone can do. Please, Jesus, help us. Teach us. Help us be good students now. Help us learn it. Oh, help us be content. Before I close the prayer, our heads are bowed. How many of you would be honest and say, Preacher, I'm convicted that in my heart and in our home, there's not enough gratitude. There's not enough emphasis on the sufficiency of God. Not enough of this contentment. And if God will help me, I want tonight to be a new beginning of that in my own life and with those I love. Would you raise your hand? Yes. Would you tell the Lord that right now? Just right where you are. Would you just tell him right now? Matter of fact, could you just say right now, Jesus, you're enough. Thank you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for living in me. Before I pray, I must ask this question. Is there anybody here tonight that would say, Preacher, I'm not sure I'm saved. Anybody like that at all? Preacher, pray for me. I'm not going to embarrass you. Just say, I'm not certain I'm really a Christian. Would you raise your hand? Anyone like that at all? Pray for me. I'm not sure I'm saved. If that's you and you're not sure you're saved tonight, the pastor and his wife are here at the front, and if you want to be saved and want to invite Jesus in your heart to be your Savior, you can get out of your seat right now and just walk to the front and the pastor will meet you. Let somebody show you from the Bible how you can have your sins forgiven. Anyone like that at all? You come to Jesus tonight. God bless you, Pastor. Could I give you this challenge before I pray? How many of you will go home tonight? I'm going to give you a homework assignment, all right? How many of you will go home tonight and do what my wife challenged me to do? And before you go to bed and before you pray, go around and let everybody share two or three things they're truly grateful to God for. How many of you will do that in your home tonight? Would you raise your hand? You'll do that in your home. Good. Tell the Lord that right now. Father, would you seal this truth to our hearts? Would you work in the lives of your people and in this place? I pray, Lord, for this faithful pastor, for his wife, for their children. Keep your hand upon them, upon this ministry. Put a hedge around this church. Keep the devil out. May the Lord continue to have his way in a mighty way in this place. May there be such a spirit of oneness, of unity, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit that people in this town will know that the Lord is among these people. 
Father, may the beautiful joy of Jesus and the contentment of Christ be seen in our lives and in our homes. May it begin afresh in us tonight. And I thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.